0: hey welcome to Rockbridge and wherever you're watching from we've got six locations multiple locations multiple languages and also we're online so however wherever and whenever you're watching thank you so much for joining with us uh, my name is matt one of the pastors on our team And we're we're talking, we've been talking since the beginning of the year around a question that we feel like uh, from God's word really fits our time. As as we're in, in the midst of just so much craziness in the world, craziness in our own lives, craziness in our nation, we just start asking this question and we've been asking it every week. Do we want a future based on what we can do? Or do we want something, or what? What a future based on what God can do, and then that's been a challenging question. That's been a a wrestling match going on inside of us. But we're building uh, layers to this. This is not just a a one deal sermon. This is we're calling it. We want it to be a movement, not a moment. We're, we're, We're examining our hearts, examining our prayer lives, and what we've said as we kicked off this new series last week is that, hey, God has to get us ready for what he can do. And and that's the process called being battle-tested, that God battle-tests us to position us, sensitize us, awaken us, alert us, so we can be a part of and we can receive what only he can do. And last week, we looked at that the primary focal point of God's preparation and God's battle testing is our heart or the CEO or center of our lives or the operating system of our lives. So this week, we're going to ask this question. If the heart is so important, the, the, our, our, the seed of who we are, right, if it is so important for what God can do and God's trying to prepare our hearts to receive, to participate in what he can do, then we need to ask this next question. Well, what kind of heart can receive what God wants to do? What kind of heart can receive what God wants to do? And, and here's why that's challenging in the, in the church in general, especially in the Bible Belt church. I think it's in the American church. I think it's Protestant, Catholic, doesn't matter. The reason that's challenging is that when it comes to spirituality and religion, we are not really taught to focus on our heart as much as our behavior. We're not so much taught to focus on what's going on inside of us as are we observing certain rules, certain rituals, certain exterior things. I'm going to church. I read my Bible. I didn't say a bad word. You know, that kind of stuff. And and so when, when we throw this question up here, a lot of us are like, what does that mean? But, but if we would understand this is where God's working and God wants to prepare our hearts for something above and beyond, as we looked at last week, all that we can ask or imagine. So we're going to lay this question on our own hearts and on our own lives. So what kind of heart can God receive or what kind of heart can receive what God wants to do? Now, let me say this to some of you. Maybe you're new to church, you're listening online for the first time, you're new back to church, uh, maybe you grew up in church, walked away from church, whatever. The, the answer to this is not going to be some to-do or not-to-do. We're not going to give anybody a rule. We're not going to give anybody some kind of behavior modification, okay? We are talking about a heart condition that God wants to give to us and help us receive. So I'm going to stop for just a minute and just pray for all of us because we need God's help. God, I thank you for everybody here today. They're not here by accident. They're not watching by accident. And God, we we just need to be open to what you would say in this moment, God, in a place that we often don't look at, that we often don't go to, and that we often just assume is all right, our hearts. God, prepare our hearts for your word. your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to kind of jump from Isaiah 56 into Isaiah 57. This part of Isaiah is a prophetic book written uh, to the to the nation of israel this part of the book this part of the book is kind of entering into what i'll call the third section all right and so in this third section you know they've been experiencing the judgments of god they, the, the movement of god the punishment of the, the discipline of god and and 56 chapter 56 is going to share a hope Then it's going to talk about idolatry, and then we're going to get back to hope of how we get there. So just kind of get the context in, and here we go. God says, I will bring them to my holy mountain, and I will let them rejoice in my house of prayer, that God's people connect with him in prayer, which is the movement we're talking about at our church, Uh, and their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house. This is something Jesus quoted. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples. Now, now this is kind of crazy and, 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 and awesome and amazing. This, one, this is why we emphasize First Wednesday so much because it is, for lack of a better term, our prayer meeting. Secondly, what God is doing is he's talking to the Jewish people, but then he goes and he says, look, eventually I'm going to bring all the nations, all the ethnicities, all the tribes, all the people groups, all the, all the thems and all the theys are going to come into my house and be a part of my family, be a part of what I'm doing. That's what God wants to do, right? That's God's global vision. And he, he even back, he says, this is the declaration of the Lord who gathers the dispersed of Israel, and I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. So it'd be like us saying, hey, there's more people than that are here today listening here today in person. There's more people God is going to bring into his family. Okay. And then he, he goes and he, he talks about sin issues and challenges and idolatry. He talks about substitutes that people have made and invented for God. He talks about we've set, basically, when we follow idolatry, we're settling for what we can do, and we worship what we can do, and we want what we can do, and we value what we can do, and we forget about, neglect what God can do. And so God goes through that indictment, and then he comes full circle, and he comes back to a place of hope, and a place of promise. And here he says this, when you cry out, let your collection of idols rescue you. And that's kind of where we've repented, I hope, or we are repenting, that we, the church in America, have for far too long depended upon what we can do as opposed to crying out for what God can do. And part of the way God disciplines his people is said, look, You've relied on those idols for happiness, for hope, for power, for control, for strength for far too long, whether your idol is a sports team, whether your idol is a boyfriend, whether your idol is is, is politics, it doesn't matter whether your idol is money, and eventually God says, hey, when you cry out, let them help you, and eventually, we will see they cannot, and that's a place of of terrible pain and, and uncertainty, but it's also a place of hope and promise, Because that's the kind of God we're talking about. It's what he wants to do, is, is find people who are receptive to him. So here's what he says. The wind will carry all of them off. All of your idols, everything you've depended upon is just gone. A breath will take them away. But now we get hopeful from God. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. So there is a way back there is a way back to God there is a way back to hope there is a heart condition if you will that that opens the door to what God can do now look at God look at the way God works because this is so incredible so he says this is God build it up build it up prepare the way remove every obstacle from my people's way Remove every obstacle. This is God talking. So we, religion tells you, you've got to clean it up. You've got to fix it. You've got to remove the obstacle. God is not into religion. God is into being a refuge. God is into doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let me say it again. God is into doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's our question, right? Do we want what we can do or do we want what God can do? And so this God says, I will remove every obstacle from your path. That's every. Now, think about who he's talking about here. He's talking about all the nations. He's not just talking about ethnic Jews, he's talking about me and you, he's talking about your enemies, your family. He's talking about people that you think have no chance getting, you know, getting into heaven. He's talking about maybe you who think God's forgotten about you. He says, I will remove every single obstacle. That's what God wants to do. That's the kind of God we have. And then the question becomes, all right, what positions us? Battle tested, right? What positions us, God, to get in that channel of grace and to receive that promise, and to receive that invitation? What positions us? Now, listen, again, we're tempted to think maybe some new knowledge, maybe some new information, maybe some special book's going to come out, maybe a new song's going to be written, or, or, or new tactics. Some of us are, man, I've got to stop this and stop that, i got to start doing that, and then God's going to be on my side. No, 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 he's already on your side. He's inviting us to him. But we're just tempted to think, when, when, I, when, I, when we look at this, we're tempted to think, what do I have to do? And that's not even the question. So he said, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to remove, I want to bring you into my presence. And so what is that condition? What is go- has to be happening in our hearts? And here's what he says. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this. I live in a high and holy place. So God lives in a place that we can't go because he is completely other and holy. He's high and exalted. He's eternal. We're not. He's pure and perfect. We're not. But he also says, but I also live with the contrite and lowly of spirit. So God says, I live high and holy But I also live with the lowly and the humble. Isn't that the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is holy. Jesus Christ is completely other. Yet Jesus Christ entered this world in a manger, in the body of in a human body, and He walked with incredible humility. Why did God do that? Why is God? What happens when God is with the lowly to revive? And we're talking about the word revival, whether it's personal, whether it's corporate, whether it's regional, whether it's national, whether it's global. We need as the church in America to talk about revival. We need as the people of God to talk about revival. Whether Matt Evans needs a personal revival, yes, I do. Or you or you or this church or these six cities that God has placed us in, we need to talk about revival. But we must talk about revival in the context of what a high and holy God can do and then what position we can get in for God to bless, God to come, God to use. And that is this one position, the lowly of spirit, the humble the contrite, those who are sorry for their sins. Humility, then, is the heart condition and the foundation of every good thing God wants to do. That is not something we will learn in our culture. That is not something we can teach ourselves. That is something we must receive and understand from a holy God who is high and lifted up And he works in and for the humble, period. That's not our culture. That's not our nature. But that is the way of God. For God to do anything, listen, listen, listen. For God to do anything worthwhile and good in our lives, humility has to come. Period. If you are a Christ follower today, you had to become humble. If you are to become a Christ follower today, and we will give you that opportunity at the close of today, if you are are or to become a Christ follower, you have to look at a holy God, and you have to look at a heinous cross where he hung for you and for me, and you have to be humbled that your sin put him there, and you have to be awed that his love for us kept him there. And then you have to bow the knee and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I need a savior. That takes humility. And the cross becomes the agent that brings us to that spot. If we want God to answer our prayers, if we want God to move in our lives, humility is the condition and the foundation that it rests upon. Now, I recognize something. Because we are blind to what it looks like to be humble, and we are blind to the anti, the opposite of humility, which is pride. We need help understanding this. And so I just want to share a story from the New Testament where I think humility is, is exemplified to the nth degree. And it's by this man named John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. And John the Baptist had a ministry. And John the Baptist's ministry had favor. And John the Baptist's ministry had blessing. And John the Baptist's ministry had followers. And John the Baptist had ministry had passionate followers. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, something begins to happen to John the Baptist's ministry. His numbers start going down, and Jesus' numbers start going up. Now, if you run a business you know that dynamic. If you follow a sports team and your team's doing bad and another team's doing good, you know that dynamic. I mean, we all know that dynamic. We all know that our economy runs in part on that dynamic. Our pride runs in part on that dynamic, correct? And into that, John the Baptist. So they came to John and said, Rabbi, teacher, the one you testified about, Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Hey, John the Baptist, your name is John the Baptist. You're the baptizer, but he's baptizing and more people are going to him than are coming to you. Now, at that moment, pride is touched or triggered because someone now is profiting or benefiting at my expense. And then John replies to that and he said, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So here's what he's saying. Everything I have is not mine to hold on to. Every position I've been given, every grace I've been gifted is not mine. So when it goes away, I'm just a steward of it, not an owner of it. I can't take credit for it. It was never my ministry to begin with. They were never my followers to start with. This wasn't my deal to begin with. Can you imagine... I mean, just think about that. How often do we say in our spirits and in our tone of voice and in our manipulations and our controls, how often are we, no, this is mine. I need the credit. I need the recognition. I need the attaboys. I need the accolades. How often is it about us? And here he's saying, no, no, no. I can't claim credit for any of this. It's, it's God's. He's the giver. I'm the steward of the gift. When the gift goes away, Fine. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. And we run the risk of here being more American than Christian, right? It's my money. It's my rights. It's mine. It's not the way of the Word of God. He goes on and he says, You yourself can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. Probably some of the three most powerful words are these three right here. I am not. Because we live in a culture that teaches us to be all about I am. Right? So this is humility just being exemplified. And then he talks about Jesus like in the form of being at a wedding. And he said, he who has the bride is the groom... Jesus but the groom's friend that's John the Baptist who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice you know when you go to a wedding as a guest you, there's one thing we all know about a wedding if you're not the bride it ain't about you right i mean i am not i, I, I but we're all excited i mean the, the best part of the wedding is, is what when those doors open and here she comes and everybody oh, and there's joy and it's not about us See, most joy is when it's about you, we're happy, right? And ha- about Matt, I'm happy, right? I mean, oh, it's her, right? And so that's kind of what John the Baptist is saying. And so he says, the, the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So now that he's here, I am not, but I'm excited that he's here. And so this joy of mine is complete. I have been living for the presentation, the recognition of Jesus Christ. My whole That's why I'm here. I am not. And then he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. I would submit to you, that story right there is the design of God for the Christ follower and the people of God, his church. He must increase, we must decrease. And so I just want to share just my rough definition of the blessable condition, which is humility. When self becomes less and less of a focus and a factor in how we live so that Christ is seen more and more through how we live. That is humility. That is what God wants that is what God created us for. And go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, in my image, I have created you. So go and represent me, reflect me, showcase me, go forth in all the earth, fill it, multiply, be fruitful, and represent me. But what did we do? Man? that over there looks good to me. Yeah, but God said, don't go. No, but it looks good to me. What about me? So we go and we eat the fruit. We take the idol and we quit representing God, but he must increase and we must decrease. So how do we grow? How do we move forward? In this position of humility, the lowly and contrite in heart, that's who I will revive. That's who I will do things for that only I can do. How do we do that? Let me just offer the following. The first is this. Well, we ask for it in prayer, and we welcome what might bring it. I want to ask our church this question. And I, and I get this from a great book by a South African pastor. He's, he's passed away, Andrew Murray. When's the last time we, any of us have prayed for humility? And, and we're scared to, right? Because we know, <laughs> we know what it takes to get to be humble, right? We, we, we welcome what might bring it. Murray says you, we ought to learn to welcome anything that vexes us, annoys us, bothers us, because it has the potential to produce humility in us, and humility is the only condition God can bless Right? So ask it in prayer, ask for it in prayer, welcome what might bring it, because that is the blessable condition. Again, again, for the Christian, hope and humility go together. Now, that is not true of the world. For the world, power and control and possessions go with hope. For the Christian, humility and hope go together. So it's, a par- it's different. And if the world sees us pursuing the hopes of the world, then we are not reflecting the one who has our hope, which is Jesus. So we ask for it in prayer and welcome what might bring it. Now the second thing. We need to probably understand pride more completely because it is such a blind spot for all, for me and I think for most of humanity. We just are so accustomed because it's so natural to operate in pride that we don't even know. It's like, how many breaths did you take today? Like, I don't know, it's just second nature. Hey, is pride active in your life? I don't think so, but it's so second nature. And so we need help to recognize it, and then we can understand how God would humble us and position us for what he can do. So here's here's another definition. Here's a definition of pride. It's a self-focused prison, like living in a wall of mirrors, that perpetuates anger, hurt, self-centeredness, and foolishness while keeping at bay conviction, humility, and reconciliation. That's a great definition. It's not necessarily comprehensive, but it's a great definition. And and here's what I would say: I know there's some, you know, there's some families and marriages that are struggling. I, I know there's some folks, you know, what about this relationship or that relationship? Humility may, will make every relationship you're in better, including your relationship with God. But we have to recognize this thing that literally can kill us, which is pride and how it works and how it perpetuates and how it operates inside of us. And, and the question becomes for us. It, the question is not, do I have pride? It's where I have it, how I have it, and when it shows up. That's it. And, and, and listen, as, as we're going to see in just a second, that's true for all of us. That's true for all of us. And, I, and I, hate that, I hate that it's so prevalent, but we just have to understand that it's there. Pride comes before the fall. We're all one decision away from stupid. But if we are committed, if we are committed to being a people who were committed for what, and are in for what God can do, we have to come to understand what quenches the work of God, the favor of God, and the grace of God. The last thing I would suggest is we learn to see God and self correctly. We see God as high and holy. We see God as high and exalted. And we also understand the ugliness of our sin and our rebellion. I will say this to everybody here. Okay, If we are growing closer to a holy God, we will become more aware of our sinfulness. There is a plague of self-righteousness on the American Christian. Everybody that I have ever studied that has this incredible intimacy with God, men and women who walked with God were incredibly aware of the ugliness of their sin and thus always stood in amazement at God's grace. If we are hungry for God, if we are hungry for what God can do, we have to understand how holy he is, how lowly we are in relation to him, and the great humility he showed to come down to us, die in our place, so we could be with him forever. There's a passage in the New Testament that discusses this relationship between God and self. It's 1 Peter 5. Listen to what he says. He says, All of you, clothe yourself, make the choice, like you choose what you put on today, to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So he says there's horizontal humility. He says this now, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's exactly what we've been talking about for the, during this duration of our time together today. Does God resist the proud and gives grace to the humble? That's the blessable condition. And then he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting, giving all your cares or anxieties upon him because he cares about you. Now, this little sentence right here, it's kind of funky in the Greek, but let me explain it, okay? Okay. This is a command, but it's kind of in the passive voice. So it's like, really could say, be humbled, but it's humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And the implication of the text is this. We can't in and of ourselves humble ourselves, but we have a choice in any situation, in any moment to make it, to cooperate with what God is doing. So under the mighty hand of God, according to 1 Peter, things come our way, which we talked about last week, tests trials, tribulations, incidents, they all come our way. And it's in that moment that we can decisively make the choice to be humble by what God's giving us. So, so it looks like this. God allows, God causes, God permits something to happen to us, around us. God does that. It's under his mighty hand. And in that moment, we receive that circumstance not as a chance to grab the steering wheel and assert ourselves. We receive that moment as an opportunity to subordinate ourselves and let Christ live in that moment. I'll I'll read it this way because this might help, okay? He says this, we do not teach ourselves to be humble. There's no five-step plan. But the main test and opportunity comes when we are confronted, unsettled, and accosted. In the moments when our semblances of control vanish and we're taken off guard by life in a fallen world. And the question comes to us, how will you respond to these humbling circumstances that are under the mighty hand of God? Will you humble yourself? So let me say that again. In the moments when our semblances of control vanish and we're taken off guard by life in a fallen world. Doesn't that describe where we are? And the question comes to us, how will you respond to these humbling circumstances under the mighty hand of God who is trying, wooing, inviting his people into the blessable condition? In those moments, in those circumstances, Will you humble yourself? He must increase. I must decrease. That's the fullest meaning of that text that I can share. So what I would like to do now, in closing, is I just want us to go into I, we're going to talk, we keep our eyes open, but I want us to pray. And I'm going to list, I think, seven the big se- big big the big seven areas that I think or God, God's word shows where these, the mighty hand, these circumstances come our way. And in those moments, we receive those humbling circumstances and then humble ourselves to give Christ a chance to show through us. As I read these and we talk about them, some of you will need to repent. Some of us will need to recognize, okay, that's God's will. That's where I need to go. That's what God's inviting me to do. So this needs to be a time where we're all talking as one church, but we're also inviting the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts because everything moves forward with humility and all of God's graces flow, but he opposes the proud. So the first is just when life is inconvenient or annoyances, uh, inconveniences, annoyances, and unmet expectations. That's the first. How do we respond? Oftentimes, anger is a sign of pride. Oftentimes, being frustrated is a sign of pride because in frustration and anger, we're saying, I can't get my way. So how do we respond? He must increase. We must decrease. Forgiveness is a second area. All of us have to learn what do we do when we are sinned against. I believe there are relationships within this church, within families in this church, within employees and employers, some of whom are in this church, some of whom may not, where people are holding on and have yet to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. It is arrogant to believe that we can't forgive because we've got to get payback or we're letting them off the hook or we can administer justice better than God can. Forgiveness is a huge barrier. Second, third area is correction. How do we respond to correction? How do we respond when a sermon, how do we, when scripture, when our spouse when someone tells us, hey, I, I think you were wrong in how you handled that. I think you were wrong in, in that particular issue. I think you were wrong in, uh, in, in what? How, how do we respond? We're trained, right, to be defensive, but God works through correction. God works through correction, and, and, and so we have to work on correction. We have to work on how do we respond when, when things that challenge who we are would correct us. A couple other areas are, and we, we read this, like anxiety. Or let me go back. So in correction, I, I had this question. I had this question. And the question was, but Matt, what about when we're right? And, 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 and some people have even said, hey, I think, I think Christians have to fight for what's right. I don't deny that The question is how do we fight right so so we're in a world that seemingly is growing increasingly anti-christian or non-christian or post-christian and so what if we need to do the correcting how do we do that well we're not the first group of christians that's wrestled with that in fact when the apostle paul wrote what i'm about to read it was illegal to be a christian it was illegal to be a christian And listen to what he says. He says, first of all, reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. And then he says this, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but be gentle to everyone. Now, we don't have to know Greek. Everyone means everyone. Able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness gentleness perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth so we can lay that verse over all the calls for Christians to resort to all kinds of ungodly activities supposedly in the name of Jesus and reject it as non-christian based on the authority of the word of God So correction, how we receive it, how we give it. We receive it with humility, and we give it with humility. How do we handle our anxieties? Are we okay? Can we give our anxieties to God? Can we allow other people to pray for us? You see, I realize this is a source of pride in my life, that I am not the greatest at sharing with how people can pray for me. So as part of our prayer thing and prayer movement and pray until you pray, I've got a group of people that are partnering with me to pray for me and pray for the church. And, uh, man, it's it's been beautiful, but it's been a struggle. And I recognize, I mean, God's been showing me, like, Matt, if you're not asking people to pray for you, you are subtly believing that you can handle it. See, my faith, our faith is a community project. There's no such thing as a solo Christian. And so I'm having to learn that. But it's beautiful to know a brother or a sister in Cleveland or Calhoun or online is praying for me specifically. It's the beauty of small groups. It's the beauty of community. Another is submission to Another. Everything from who gets to pick what you watch on TV to how you operate in your home. Those are instances where we can say he must increase and I must decrease. How do we handle favor and prosperity? See, blessings are tests too. The tendency in favor and prosperity is to say, I did this. I deserve this. I am entitled to this. This is mine. In humility, favor and prosperity to, should do nothing but make us grateful and generous together. And then lastly, sin and guilt. How do we respond when we sin? Some of us are, have been taught that the response to sin is man, either to deny it, to compare ourselves to others and say, well, at least I'm not like them. All of those are what? Manifestations of pride. Only in Christianity when we have sin and guilt, can we take that sin and guilt to a cross and can we take that sin and guilt to a savior and we go low at the foot of the cross and we say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me in humility. And so here's our verse. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Some of you today, I just invite you, would you, for the first time, And maybe you're realizing it that this is the first time, even if you've been in church all your life, but would you for the first time give Christ your life? It does take humility, but God's producing it because he shows you his son on the cross. And he loves you that much, but your sin costs that much too. So in blessed humility, you receive the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the life that is in Christ Jesus. Others of us, where in our lives do we need to say, I must decrease so Christ can increase? He must increase, but I must decrease. And do we see how doing that brings us the great joy of knowing, this is why I'm here. This is why he put me here. This is my joy, the joy of seeing Jesus live his life through me. Let's be the people of God. Let's have a heart that is humbled because we have a God who's waiting to do what only he can do. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for what you're teaching, what you're showing, and what you're revealing. God, it is, I just want to confess, it's hard because we have not been taught that hope and humility go together. And we've been taught that we've got to take care of number one. We've been taught, or, or it's ingrained in us naturally, God, that we've got to watch out for ourselves. And so, God, I just pray that if nothing else happens today, a little bit of us diminishes so a little bit of you can grow inside of us. God, I know there's areas where people need to repent. I know there's areas where people need to just cooperate. And I just pray, God, we're saying yes to you. And then finally, God, if there's anybody that just needs to give you the steering wheel of their lives and for the first time come alive in Christ and they're just hearing you speak to them, not me, I pray, God, they say yes to Jesus Christ. Jesus, I thank you you first said yes to us and you left the high and lofty to come and live a lowly life so you could give us abundant and eternal life and for that we stand amazed and it's in your name we pray amen